The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Thank you, Anthony. (laughs) We are continuing in our study of the Gospel of John, and we're finishing up chapter 20 today. We've been looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Yeshua. We saw that Yeshua's first post-resurrection appearance was to Mary, Lazarus' sister, and that happened at dawn that Sunday morning. Then a little later the day, Yeshua appeared to two disciples on their way to the town of Emmaus, Then later that day, Yeshua appeared to the apostles and others, uh, I think most likely in the upper room. Remember, the doors were locked and the Lord shows up in the midst of them. But Thomas wasn't there with them. So when they told Thomas, he's like, I'm not going to believe that. I won't believe unless I see it, unless I touch him. And so the Lord shows up the next Sunday night. Thomas is there this time and he tells Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, put your hand out place it in my side. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And to that, Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. Now, this is one of the strongest statements in Scripture affirming the deity of Christ. This is a Jewish man who knows you serve and worship only Yahweh. And here he is calling Yeshua God because he realizes who He is. And the Lord doesn't say, oh no, no, you got it wrong. I'm not God. I'm just a certain... No, the Lord doesn't correct Him because He is. John began this Gospel. If you remember, back in John 1.1, okay, the Word was God, He said. Okay, Yeshua is the Word. The Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. That's Yeshua. So Thomas's confession brings us all the way around to a climax. We got the whole book and then Thomas at the end saying, my Lord, my God. So the deity of Christ forms an inclusio in this Gospel. And you know what that is, right? In literature, an inclusio is a literary device, kind of like bracketing or an envelope structure. It's kind of a frame around the thoughts that are in the middle. And see, in the whole middle of this book, it's all about the deity of Christ. Begins with an affirmation of His deity, ends with an affirmation of His deity. Everything between this is talking about the fact that Yeshua is Yahweh. Lazarus' emphasis is on the deity of Christ. You've got to see that. We see His deity in the various miracles that He performs. We'll talk about that in a second. We also see His deity in the seven I Am statements in this Gospel. In John 8.58, Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, a literal translation here would read, Before Abraham was brought into being, I exist. See, the statement, therefore, is not that Christ came into existence before Abraham, but that He already existed before Abraham was brought into being. In other words, Christ existed before creation or eternally. Yeshua is claiming, when He says, I am, He is claiming equality with Yahweh Himself, who referred to himself in Exodus 3, I am that I am. Moses said, who should we say, who should I say sent me? And he says, I am that I am. Ehia, asher ehia in the Hebrew. The self-existent eternal God. Yeshua is claiming that for himself. So in this Gospel, we're being called to the faith that Thomas expresses. Every one of us. That Yeshua is Yahweh. We looked at these verses last week. We closed here. Yeshua said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? And that could be a question, but it could be a statement. All right? It could go either way in the Greek. Blessed are those who have seen, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, who is this? Who's the blessed here? Who's he talking about? Us. Okay? Any of you seen him? Don't put your hand up. I'm going to be wondering about you, okay? (laughs) We have believed on Christ. We've trusted Him, but we've never seen Him. You know, the fourth Gospel only records two times 
that Yeshua pronounced a blessing. One of them was in the upper room. After He washed the disciples' feet, He commanded them to follow His example of service. And He said to them, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now the first if here is a first class condition which assumes from the author's perspective to be true. Since you know these things, the second if is a third class condition. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. You might do them, you might not do them. You're supposed to do them. This reflects the Hebrew Shema. You hear so as to do. Basically, the Lord's saying here, if you want to be blessed, follow my example. Practice humble service. Again, the context here is foot washing. He washed their feet. He's not telling us to wash others' feet. He's telling us to serve others humbly. You want to be blessed? That's how you do it. All right? Now, when Yeshua tells Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, this includes all who have believed in Christ since He ascended to heaven. Again, including you and me. Now, verse 30, we're going to look at 30 and 31 today. Um, I planned on doing these verses last week, but you're, you should be thankful I didn't because we've been here a long time, alright? <laughs> he said, now Yeshua did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. They're not written in this book. Now, the Greek text here has particles, men un which connect verses 30 to 31 with what precedes it. Now, the most common meaning of un is therefore. And other translations have therefore here instead of now. So those who have not seen the risen Christ and yet have believed are blessed. Therefore, this book has been composed to the end that you may believe. So you can be blessed. He wrote this book so you can be blessed by believing in the Christ that you haven't seen. He said, Yeshua did many other signs. Now, we're not exactly sure what he means by signs here. I think he's talking about the miracles, but some say, well, by signs here he means other signs of post-resurrection. In other words, he showed up to other people and showed them that I'm alive. That's a possibility, but I think the better thing is he meant here the signs as in the seven miracles that are focused on in the first 12 chapters. Alright? If you take all the miracles that Lazarus records and add them to the ones Matthew records, and Mark records, and Luke records, you get about 40 separate miracles that Yeshua did. But I doubt that this sums up all the miracles that Yeshua did. I mean, for three years, His life was marked by miracles. I mean, we know that He essentially banished disease from the land of Palestine while He was there. Look at the last verse of this book and what it says. Now, there are also many other things that Yeshua did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now that is, you know, slight exaggeration there. But what he's trying to tell us is, if we wrote down everything, you know, there'd be a lot, a lot of volumes. Alright? So I think we can conclude that there's many miracles that Yeshua did that weren't even written about. That we don't even know about. Alright? And he says he did these in the presence of the disciples. In other words, he did these miraculous signs and there was eyewitnesses to them. These men saw them and these men are credible witnesses. They're so credible that they went out and sacrificed their lives and they died because of what they believed in. They must have been pretty serious about their belief. Okay? He says, which are not written in this book. Now, this could suggest that there's other signs uh, recorded in other books. In other words, they're not all in this book, but there may be in other books. But I think the point here is that Lazarus has been selective in the use of his material. Okay, He chose to record only those incidents from the life and ministry of Yeshua which support his purpose in writing this Gospel. He's got a specific purpose. He chose these signs for that purpose. The last verse says, but these are written so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. This summarizes Lazarus' theology as well as articulating his purpose. Now, because of the language used here, there's a lot of argument about, well, is the purpose here evangelistic? Or is the purpose here for believers? You know, I, I think that clearly 
His main objective is for unbelievers. Now, does that mean we don't get anything out of it? Well, if that was true, we wouldn't even study this book, okay? Because we've been in here for over a couple of years, and I know personally I've been blessed by it. You know, I'm learning, I'm growing from it. So I think that's definitely a secondary cause. You know, believers are going to read this stuff and be encouraged too. But mainly he's writing to unbelievers. And I think the implication of this primary evangelistic purpose is that John meant unbelievers when he wrote you. That you may believe, because believers already believe. And by believing, you may have eternal life. Alright, it's evangelistic. But these are written, he says, what does these refer to here? What? Okay. It refers to signs in the previous verse, okay? These refers to the signs. Now, many other signs he did in the presence of disciples, but these, these signs are written, all right? The signs are written that you may believe. Now, the use of signs has been a major theme in this gospel. You remember what was the first 12 chapters of this book was called? The book of signs, I know. Not complicated, but we, we did stress that many times. And that the reason it's called the book of signs is because in these first 12 chapters, he's emphasizing signs. This miracle, that miracle, to prove who Christ said he was. All right, now when we talk about signs... We're simply defining the purpose of a miracle. You know, Christ didn't just do miracles to, hey guys, watch this, poof! You know, He wasn't a magician, He wasn't putting on a show. They were signs to point to something. Alright, that's the purpose of a sign. A sign points to something. When you get to the sign, you know, it's, I'm there, I've arrived. No, the sign's telling you how to get there. It's pointing to something else. And that was the purpose of the miracles. Yeshua performed supernatural acts that had greater significance beyond the miracle. Each miracle was a sign that pointed to a theological truth, and John has built his gospel around seven theologically significant public signs to point to Yeshua's divinity, to point to the fact that Yeshua's claim to be the Messiah. That's what these signs are for. They're pointing to Him. He's divine. He's God. So in our text, Lazarus is informing his unbelieving readers about the bottom line of all that he's written. He has one goal for the unbeliever. He wants to demonstrate as clearly and as forcefully as he can that Yeshua not only claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, but that by many miraculous signs, he proved it. Normal people just don't go around doing these things, okay? The last and the greatest of these signs, I think, was the resurrection from the dead. We've just been looking at that. I don't know how you could discount that. As, that's a pretty good sign. You kill me, in three days, I'll rise from the dead. And he does. I'm like, wow. How about that? Maybe we can believe everything he said. You know, and that's the whole point. Look at John 5.36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. you understand that? Hey, look, I raised the dead. Well, you must be from God. I mean, average people just don't do that kind of stuff. Do you remember what Nicodemus said in chapter 3 when he went to Yeshua? What did Nicodemus say to him? He said, Rabbi, we know that you're from God. How do we know that? Because nobody can do the works that you do unless God's with them. In other words, <laughs> something special about you, we know that. And that was the purpose of the miracles. All right, They're showing God is with him. There's something very different about him. Look what he said in John 10.36-38. Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I'm the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. The Lord's saying, look, just look at what I'm doing. You might not believe me, but people don't do this stuff. The works of Yeshua authenticated His mission in the eyes of the people and they support His claims 
to divinity. Only God can heal a man who had been lame from birth for 38 years. Only God gives sight to the blind. Not Benny Hinn, not any of these other jokers, okay? They're not doing that, all right? They're healing low back pain and sinus headaches. They're not, you know, people aren't growing new limbs or getting up, you know. This is God. Now, Lazarus calls these miracles signs because they are signs that point that Yeshua is God. And he picks out seven of them leading up to the resurrection in chapter 11, his own resurrection in chapter 11. Now, the number seven is a significant number to the Jews. I think you're all aware of that. There's, there was a sacredness in the number seven. It pictures completion. It pictures perfection. These signs were chosen for a particular reason. These signs point to Him as Messiah of Israel and point to Him as the Son of God. Now, it is my opinion that Yeshua actually performed nine miracles in this Gospel. Six of which are not recorded in the synoptics. You only find six of these miracles in this book. But I see two of the seven as not being signs. Remember, Lazarus is focusing on these seven signs. We got nine miracles. How do we exclude two of them? Well, because I think two of these miracles are done privately. Only the disciples are there. And so they're not a sign. Now, one of those miracles is walking on the water. Disciples are in the boat, he comes walking, and they're a little bit afraid. You get that, right? That's pretty cool, but the coolest part is when he gets in the boat. What happens when he gets in the boat? The boat's immediately at the dock. You know, teleported that whole thing over there, right? So I think that is a, you know, that's a private miracle. And also in the next chapter, we're going to see, you know, the Lord tells them, hey, throw your net in and pull it up. And man, they got all these fish. They can't even pull the net in, okay? And that's, again, a private miracle. But if you discount that miracle of walking on the water, then the seventh and the greatest sign is the resurrection of Yeshua Himself. And uh, so let me try to share that with you. Well, let's look at these seven signs that are recorded for the purpose of bringing men to faith in Christ. That's, that's why He wrote these. That's what this Gospel is about. I want you to believe. I want you to confess. I want you to say the same thing Thomas said, my Lord and my God. The first sign was what? Water to wine. Okay, that's a pretty good miracle, right? <laughs> Chapter 2, where Yeshua does His first public miracle in Canaan. Up to this point in His life, all right, Yeshua's about 30 years old, He never did a miracle. Despite what the Koran says. Yes, the Koran describes Yeshua as a miracle-working boy who was able to create birds from clay and raise people from the dead. Let me show you that. I'm going to quote from the Quran. I won't do that too often, but let me show you what it says, all right? Then will Allah say, O Jesus, the son of Mary, recount my favor to thee and to thy mother. Behold, I strengthen thee with the Holy Spirit so that thou, so thou didst speak to the people in childhood and in maturity. Behold, I taught thee the book and wisdom the law, and the gospel, and behold, thou makest out of clay, as it were, the figure of a bird. So Yeshua is a little kid, he's playing with clay, and he makes it like a bird. By my leave, and thou breathest into it, and it becomes a bird. Now, what is the purpose of that miracle? Hey guys, watch this. I can make birds. No, uh... By my leave, and thou healest those born blind, and lepers, by my leave. And behold, thou bringest forth the dead by my leave. And behold, I did restrain the children of Israel from violence to thee, when thou didst show them the clear signs. I think that's kind of interesting there, you know. Allah is saying, I restrained the children of Israel when you did these signs, so they just didn't, you know, kill you. And you show the clear signs, and the unbelievers among them said, this is nothing but evident magic. Alright, that's from Surah 5.1.10. Where did the Quran get this information? Is this stuff that Allah just made up? It comes from a single pseudepigraphal writing called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. 
okay? It's nonsense, but that's where it came from, and so that's where that background came from. But the Scriptures teach that Yeshua's first miracle was water to wine. He said, this, the first of His signs. Now, the Greek word used for sign here is semion, which means a mark, an indication, a token. It can mean an event that is an indication or confirmation of intervention by transcended powers or a miracle. So I was just describing, as we said, this is what the miracle is all about. It's used of miraculous acts as tokens of divine authority and power. So these works performed by Yeshua are not just supernatural miracles. They're signs that unveil the glory and the power of God working through Yeshua, the Messiah. Yeshua's miracles were not just random acts. You know, making birds fly out of clay or whatever. Done on a whim, just intended to impress people with His incredible power. They were the Spirit acting through Yeshua to attest to His deity. Alright, that's so important. That's what these are about. Peter will say of Yeshua, he says, Yeshua the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. Peter's saying, listen, you guys know He was from God. God attested to this man by the things that He did which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. You guys know this. You saw it. You were witnesses. So Yeshua turning water to wine was a sign. It was a miracle that had significance. Its significance appeared to be that it showed Yeshua had the same power to create that God demonstrated in creation. It pointed to Yeshua being Creator God. Now, the second sign miracle in John's Gospel is the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4 who was at the point of death. So the father knew that was the hour when Yeshua had said, you know, this is just such a cool story. This guy goes to Yeshua and says, hey, my son's near death. Can you heal him? Yeshua said he's healed. Go on back home. He doesn't go home to the next day. He's just so confident. And then when he gets home, hey, your son's healed. Really? When, When did he get healed? And they tell him, yesterday at this, oh, that's the same time the Lord said he was healed. How about that? Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Yeshua did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So Lazarus, interesting, calls this miracle the second sign that Yeshua performed. Here's the interesting thing. He did other miracles before the second sign. But this was a specifically a sign. All right? He did miracles in Galilee and Judah after he changed the water to wine. So this is the second of the sign miracles Lazarus has labeled in this gospel. Now, the third sign occurs in chapter 5. It's the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He has been there. Man, I'm getting, getting myself mixed up here. He has been there for 38 years. All his life, Okay. Yeshua comes along. He heals him instantaneously. He tells him to stand up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Listen, the guy doesn't know how to walk. He's never walked. 38 years. This is an incredible miracle of complete restoration. And Yeshua said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was on the Sabbath day. And he did it in purpose on the Sabbath to stir all these uh, Pharisees up. So immediately this guy, you know, he just speaks and immediately the guy's well. 38 years of a disability healed in an, healed in an instant. Now, you know, normally if your muscles haven't worked for a while, they atrophy. And then, you know, you have to go through therapy and all kinds of other stuff. Well, not here, okay? This man has full use of his muscles. The instantane, It's pretty cool because he never learned to walk and now all of a sudden he's walking and running. The prophets had predicted when Messiah came, Messiah would heal the lame. And so here are these people, you know, and Yeshua's making these extravagant claims, then He heals a lame man, and they should have scratched their heads and said, what? What is going on here? This is proof for all Jerusalem to see. The Messiah has appeared. In chapter 6, we come to the fourth sign. And here we see Yeshua's power over nature. He creates food to feed 20,000 people. He starts with two fish and five biscuits. And he ends up feeding 20,000 people 
with a whole bunch of leftovers, okay? Yeah, that's pretty miraculous, all right? 6.14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So what, who are they talking about? Who's the prophet? Well, back in Deuteronomy 18, Moses talked about the prophet that was to come, the one who would be Messiah. And certain segments of Judaism expected the Messiah to repeat the miracle of the manna. And so thus the feeding of the 5,000 enabled Yeshua to affirm His Messianic ministry without even uttering a single word. They just saw this and they said, this is the new Moses. This is the Messiah. Alright, the fifth sign is where we come to a difference of opinion with some people. Kind of controversial. The fifth sign is Yeshua walking on the water, stilling the storm in the Sea of Galilee. I mean, definitely a cool miracle. Chapter 6, 19-20. When they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Yeshua walking on the sea and coming near their boat, and they were frightened. To the Jews, the sea was the entrance to the abyss. Okay, the underworld came in and out through the water. So when you see something, they didn't like water. They don't build homes on the water. They're not crazy about being on the water at all. That's why they really don't like storms on the water. Well, they're out in the water, and here's this someone walking on it. So they're frightened. But he says, hey guys, it's me, don't be afraid. So they're glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was on land. Man, that's amazing. Can you? I mean, these guys are out in the middle of a storm, and all of a sudden they look, and they're at the dock. That's pretty cool. All right? Now, since there are seven signs, I don't see this as one of them. This is a private miracle. It's done only for the disciples. So I see the fifth sign as Yeshua healing the man who was born blind in chapter 9. All right, 9, 6, and 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So this man was blind from birth, and now he sees. There are more miracles of the giving of sight to the blind recorded of Yeshua than healings of any other category. And I think there's a significance there. He gives sight. Spiritual as well as the physical. And the physical is just, you know, to point to the spiritual. What's this miracle tell us? Well, one of the signs of the coming Messiah would be he would open the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 35.5 the Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. So we see first This is what Messiah is going to do. Two things in this sign. Evidence of the fact that He's the Messiah. Alright? Look at Psalm 146. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh raises up those who are bowed down. So, Messiah is going to open the eyes of the blind. Yahweh is going to open the eyes of the blind. So we see that Yeshua is Messiah, but this Messiah is Himself Yahweh. This is a very important miracle, identifying Him as the one for whom Israel was waiting. People, if you don't see the deity of Christ, if you don't see that Yeshua is Yahweh in this Gospel, something's wrong with your eyes. Okay? Because that's what you're blind. That's right. Because that's what this is all about. Now, the sixth sign is found in chapter 11, which is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He's been in the tomb four days. His body's in a state of decay. And Yeshua comes and raises him from the dead. John eleven forty three. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. People, dead people don't usually listen to things you say. You know, it's kind of unusual. Next time you're at a funeral, try it. It doesn't work too well. It only works with Yeshua, all right? His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. We just talked about that with Yeshua in the face cloth. Yeshua said to them, unbind him and let him go. What this means is that Yeshua reconstitutes this putrefying flesh. Four days. He renews the dehydrated blood. He restores the body fluid. He reverses the cold, hard stiffness of death. He resuscitates the heart and the lungs. And boom, this guy is alive again. But he's all wrapped up. 
Because He is the resurrection and the life, His voice commanded the one who has been dead for four days, and by His words, He calls forth life out of death. You know, just as in the original creative act at the beginning of time, the Word of God summoned into existence all that is. He calls forth life, showing. Look what He can do. So here the living Word, the Son of God, speaks life into the one who was dead. In this sixth sign, Yeshua has given back physical life as a sign of His power to give eternal life. As He promised on the last day, He would raise the dead. So we see Yeshua's power over death. We see His power over blindness, over nature, over deformity, over illness. We see His power to create. This is evidence that He is the Son of God. This is the last sign miracle in the book of signs. Problem is, that's only six. If you discount the one walking on the water. So how do we get seven? You know, what's the seventh sign miracle? Well, the final sign, the seventh sign, I believe, comes in chapter 20, and is the resurrection of Christ Himself. Now, part of the these are written is Yeshua's resurrection because it is the fulfillment of His promise that He would rise from the dead, therefore verifying that everything He told us about Himself is true. He's the Messiah. He's the eternal Son of God. We can be confident, therefore, that He will accomplish everything else He promised to do. Well, Christ's resurrection is definitely a miracle. It's a a great sign, but it's not in the book of signs. Or is it? Maybe it is. This sign was predicted back in chapter 2. Watch. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us? We need a sign. So, okay, you're connecting this, right? Sign to sign, okay? Trying to connect the resurrection to a sign. Yeshua answered them, destroy this temple. Three days, I'll raise it up. Okay, so what's he saying? The resurrection is a sign, all right? So the Jews asked for a sign. He says, you're going to get a sign. All right, they go on. The Jews said then, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Yeshua had spoken to them. They believed it, but not until after they actually saw him. Okay? He's speaking about the temple of his body. So the sign that Yeshua gives them is his resurrection. They would destroy the temple, his body, and he would raise it in three days. His resurrection then will be the sign from heaven that ultimately validates His claim to be the Son of God. Now chapter 20 records this sign. He had the power Himself to raise from the dead to conquer death. So these seven signs are given to us as evidences that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of God. Alright, so we're going to take the miracle from seven. We're going to say it's in the book of signs because He talks about it there. So we have these seven miracles demonstrating who He is. Now, people... Think about what the people... Put yourself in their sandals, okay? Put yourself in their robe. You're walking around town. You hear about this guy from Nazareth. He's doing these, all these amazing things. Let's say you're at the pool of Bethesda, and you see this man. You know this guy. He's there begging all the time. All of a sudden, he's up and he's walking. And there's a big stir about it because he's carrying his mat. And wait a minute, it's the Sabbath. You can't do that. All right? Think of what the people who lived there saw. You're at the wedding, and all of a sudden you know, hey, this is the best wine we ever tasted. You hear about this rich man's son who was healed. You you hear you're sitting there when he feeds all these people. You watch the blind man who begged for so long now sees. You know Lazarus. And you're maybe at his funeral. You're mourning, and all of a sudden he's back. That doesn't happen too often. How would you respond to those things? I mean, wouldn't this cause you to think a little bit? Like, oh, maybe this guy, what he's saying is true. Let me tell you here something, all right? It takes more than signs to bring people to faith in Christ. Okay? I mean, today, people are always chasing around after miracles. If I only see this, I'll believe. Yeshua said, if someone raises from the dead, they still won't believe. Now, look at 
the end of, near the end of the book of signs, John says this, John 12, 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still didn't believe in him. It, you know, it, to us, it's almost inconceivable, okay? They didn't believe, though, because why? Well, the context of chapter 12, they didn't believe because they couldn't believe, because their hearts were blind. Isaiah said he has blinded their minds. Signs don't help a blind man because he can't see the signs. Listen, people, we believe the Bible because the Spirit of God has given us faith. Faith is a gift from God. We weren't argued into believing by this good argument or that good argument. We were led by divine power. The Lord gives us life. He gives us sight. And we say, that's an incredible miracle. He is who He said He was. But you have to have sight. Lazarus tells us that he wrote about these seven signs so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God. He wrote this gospel to lead his readers to the type of faith that Thomas just articulated. The word Christ here is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which is literally an anointed one. It was the descendant of David who was prophesied to bring in the new age of righteousness. Yeshua of Nazareth is the Jewish Messiah. He's the one who God sent to be the Savior of the world. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John wants us to realize. And also that He is the Son of God. Now this is an expression which for the Jews functioned in a very similar way to Christ or Messiah. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. In the Tanakh, Messiah was to be the Son of God. He was to be the King. From the time of David on, the Messiah was known as the Son of God in a unique way. The psalmist says in Psalm 2, the Messiah also will be the Son of God. And that's what John 20.31 is saying. That's what they need to believe. These Jews, they need to believe who He is. Now chapter 20 ends with, and that by believing you may have life. It's not a trick question, but let me ask you this. How do we receive eternal life? Thank you, people. You have to believe. Watch, watch. That by believing. Now, hang on for just a second here. The Greek here is kai hina pistuo, okay? Which is a hina purpose clause. In order that by believing you may have life. The goal of Lazarus writing these truths about Yeshua is that so you would personally believe in Him and have eternal life. If we miss that, we miss everything. People, we must believe. Now, you might say, okay, why are you stressing this? Why are you stressing it? I'm stressing the necessity of faith because there are those under the umbrella of preterism who say we don't need faith. They're universalists. Okay, Universalism is the teaching that God through the atonement of Yeshua will ultimately bring reconciliation between Himself and all people throughout history. This reconciliation will occur regardless of of whether they have trusted in or rejected Yeshua as Savior during their lifetime. That's what they teach. You don't need to believe. It doesn't matter. They teach that everybody will be saved. Whether they believe or not. People, this is another gospel. It's a false gospel. It's a gospel that doesn't require what the Bible demands. Because look what the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish. People, it is only those who believe in Him that don't perish. If you don't believe, you perish. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Oh, so in order to not be condemned, you have to believe, right? Watch, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. If you don't believe, you're condemned. 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You're condemned because you don't believe, because you have to believe. The unbeliever is condemned. The unbeliever is under the wrath of God. That's why the church has always called men to faith in Christ. John 8.24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, there's no he in the Greek text. Again, he's claiming to be Yahweh. Unless you believe that I'm Yahweh, you will die in your sins. There's only one thing that prevents you from dying in your sins and being damned forever, and that is believing that Yeshua is Yahweh. That is trusting Him. Belief of the truth, nothing more and nothing less is what separates the saved from the damned. Now, understanding that this is what the Bible teaches, I want you to listen to a, a, a preterist lady who has a ministry called um, The Porch, and she teaches, and her name is Cindy Coates, and I'm not trying to attack Cindy, but I'm definitely attacking her doctrine. Okay? This is what Cindy has to say. How did you know the Lord? And I go, well, here's how I came to know the Lord. I was actually studying 2,000 years ago. But in 1969, I fell in love with the idea. I was studying 2,000 years ago. The whole world was studying 2,000 years ago. They were all studying. She looks pretty good for her age. She is saying that she was born saved. She was saved 2,000 years ago, so when she was born, she was born saved. But the Bible teaches we're born dead in trespasses and sins. And we need salvation. She says the whole world was saved 2,000 years ago. They were all saved. How could she have been saved 2,000 years ago when you cannot be saved until you believe? That's what the Bible teaches. Look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You know this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. The faith is a gift. So we're saved by grace through faith. Now when it says through faith here, he's talking about the instrumentality of our salvation. The biblical ordo salutis, the order of salvation, is that Yahweh in His grace gives us life. And then when we hear the gospel, we respond by faith. People, God doesn't believe. We believe. That's our response. We believe. But the response is something created in us by God. By grace you're saved through the instrumentality of faith. Faith is understanding and assent to the propositions of the gospel. Let me just add here, a person cannot believe what they don't understand. You have to hear the gospel to believe the gospel. And you didn't, none of you heard it 2,000 years ago. Faith is belief or trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. Notice what Peter preached. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. People, the only people that receive forgiveness are those who believe. The whole world's not saved. Only those who believe. All right, Cindy goes on to say in the same teaching segment. Oh, what in the world? There's... So what you do is you awaken people to righteousness. That's really soul winning. True soul winning, winning over the mind, will, and the emotions. Because Jesus already reconciled the world to himself. But we have to make that announcement. Did you know that God has already recon reconciled you? You could walk into a strip joint and walk up to a lady. A stripper. That works there. <laughs> Did you know that you've been reconciled to God? Did you know that he has made you the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? So this stripper doesn't have to believe the gospel. 
doesn't have to hear it or know it. She doesn't need to see herself as a sinner. She's already righteous. Everybody is righteous. Therefore, people, there is no need to share the gospel with anybody. No one needs the gospel. We're all righteous already. How has God reconciled the whole world to Himself? Has He done that? Well, Cindy Coates says that the world has been reconciled to God, and she takes the word world here as referring to every single human being. She's saying that all people are righteous, we just need to let them know they're righteous. She says that people sin because they have bad habits, not because they're sinners. Well, let's look at the text that Cindy's using in here to try to prove and justify her universalism. They have verses, people. Okay, they have verses. 2 Corinthians 5. But we're going to back up a little to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Who is the new creation here? It is those who are in Christ. Okay? It's not everyone. It's in Christ. In Christ is one of Paul's favorite metaphors to describe the Christian. He is speaking of your position. You're in Christ. You get there. By faith. All right? He goes on, and this is from God who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. It says that God through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, who's the us here? It is those in Christ, it is believers. That's what he just talked about in verse 17. It's those in Christ. That's who the us is. Only believers are reconciled to God. Yeshua became believers' reconciliation. Now they must become by means of sharing the gospel, the reconciliation to others. We, we are to take that and share it. Look what he says in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now notice he doesn't go say here, go tell everybody They've been reconciled. No, he says, go and implore. Go beg people to be reconciled. This is a present passive imperative. The passive voice could be translated, let God reconcile you to Himself. It's a command, people. The imperative is a command. Be reconciled to God. He's telling you, you've got to do something. God only reconciles those who believe. Not all people believe. Those who don't believe. Perish. God has sheep and there's goats. Okay? Now someone may say, but the text says that God was reconciling the world to Himself, right? Yeah, and that's what Cindy focuses on. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Okay, it says there, God was reconciling the world to Himself. Everybody agree with that? Does it say that? Okay, now here's the question, people. Hang on, you ready? What does it mean by what it says? Okay, because we have to figure that out. What's the world? It says world, it means every single person, right? Does world mean every single individual without exception, without a distinction? Some say no. Can you back that up? What does the Bible teach about the term world? The, world, the word world here is from the Greek word cosmos. If you look up all the uses of cosmos, you'll see it's used in different senses. In our text, it's simply a term for humanity. All right? God was in Christ reconciling humanity. The word world or cosmos often, listen, often has a relative rather than an absolute meaning. So you read world and you say, world, that's everybody. Really? Well, let's look at a few examples then. John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look! The world has gone after him. Now, was everybody in the world going after Yeshua? <laughs> was everybody equally, without distinction, without exception, going after Christ? No, we just read verse 37, all the signs they still didn't believe. So in the same chapter, he's saying, no, they didn't believe. No, the world wasn't going after him. They didn't. This is speaking of the Pharisees. They wanted to kill him. So it's obviously the term world doesn't refer to every single person all the time. Acts 19.27 
And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, or Diana, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worships. Believers, at this point in time, did the whole world, every single person in the world worship Diana? We know the Christians didn't. A lot of people didn't worship that. There was a ton of other gods that people were worshiping. She was just one of them. She's a local deity. That didn't mean every single person. No. Look at Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Yeshua the Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. You think every single person that lived at that time knew of the faith of the Romans? Some people didn't even know there was Romans. Okay? No, they didn't. So what does world mean in our text in 2 Corinthians 5? Paul is using world to refer to Jews and Gentiles. God is reconciling men from all nations. That's the emphasis. When he uses world, very often it means Jews and Gentiles. All nations, because the Jews were stuck on God only loves us. No, he's reconciling the world. There's Gentiles coming in. The nations are coming in. If God is going to reconcile every single person, listen to me, it would mean that He loves every single person. Okay? And this is what universalists believe. This is kind of like the linchpin of universalism. All right, They have to start with this premises. God loves everybody. Listen, if God loved everybody, I would agree with them. Because if He loved everybody, He's going to save everybody. But the Bible doesn't teach that God loves everybody equally, without distinction, without exception. How can Yeshua say with reference to His disciples, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. What? That's rude. I mean, if, if God loves the whole world, why wouldn't Yeshua pray for them? Now listen. Believe me, I understand that most people, most Christians believe that God loves everybody. That's almost a universal belief. <laughs> Get the pun? <laughs> okay, really. I mean, just ask anybody. God oh yes, absolutely. God loves everybody. Listen, to the world, God has one attribute. Love. That's it. God's just a love bunny. That's why He just loves everybody. You know, He's a hippie or something. They forget about wrath, justice. All the other attributes of God are just washed away and God just loves. Let me tell you something, people. The idea that God loves everybody is a modern belief. Okay? The writings of the church fathers, the reformers, the Puritans will be searched in vain for that concept. The fact is, the love of God is a truth for the saints only. With the exception of John 3.16, not once, in the four Gospels, do we read of the Lord Yeshua telling sinners that God loved them? Nowhere in the four Gospels. doesn't say it. John 3.16 says God loved the world. Oh, He loves Jews and Gentiles. That's the point of that verse. He loves Jews and Gentiles. Not just you Jews. He's talking to Nicodemus, a Jew. God loves the world. It's beyond you. Right, exactly. Alright? Now, okay, the Gospels, one time, God loves you. We get to the book of Acts. What are they doing in Acts? They're taking the gospel to the world, right? They're going out and they're preaching. How many times does it talk about the love of God in the book of Acts? Zero. Zero. You've got to scratch your head and say, wait a minute. That's, that's how people preach the gospel today, right? You walk up to somebody, do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Really? What verse is that? Where does it say that? That's not how the gospel starts. The gospel starts with, you are dead in sins and trespasses. God is angry with you. You're a sinner. You need Christ. No, God loves everybody. The apostles were messed up because they went on preaching the gospel and never told people about the love of God. Not once. That seems odd to me. But when we come to the epistles, which are written to Christians, saints, we have a full presentation of the truth. The love of God. Because the love of God is towards us. Look what he says in Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastens every son whom He receives. Okay, so who does God discipline? So what's the point of that distinction? It must be telling us He doesn't love everybody. 
Because he doesn't discipline everybody, so he can't love everybody. You know, this distinction here is meaningless if it, God loves everybody. God only chastens who he loves, which is a reference to his elect, to believers. Lazarus wrote this gospel that people would believe. These things are written. So he really didn't need to even write this book. If Cindy's right, everybody's getting saved, no one needs faith, you're all taken care of, any. you're all saved anyway. So, John, you just wasted a bunch of time, and we just wasted a couple years. These are written that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ. And that's important, why? Because believing is the only way you're going to have life in His name. It is only by believing in Christ that anyone will ever have life apart from faith men perish. We are called to present the gospel to a lost world. We're not to tell people they're righteous. We're to tell them they're sinners separated from God in need of a Savior. If they're righteous, they don't need a Savior. They don't really need anything. They're already good. Why am I making such a big deal about this? Because I see universalism as an attack on the Gospel. Because over and over, the Bible calls upon men to believe on the Lord Yeshua, the Christ for salvation. But universalism says, you don't need to believe. Everybody's saved. It's an attack on the gospel. You don't need to share the gospel. You don't need to preach the gospel. You don't need to just leave everybody alone. The Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? The apostle said, nothing, don't worry about it. It's all taken care of. Is that what they said? No, that's not what they told him. Why? They said, believe on the Lord, Yeshua the Christ. You have to believe. How do I get saved? Believe on the Lord. Universalists just answer the jailer, don't worry about it. All men are already saved. Bereans, just because somebody holds to a correct doctrine of eschatology does not mean, just because they believe the Lord returned in AD 70, just because their eschatology is right, doesn't make them our brother. Okay? Much more important than the doctrine of eschatology is the doctrine of soteriology. How is a man saved? That is a hill I will die on. Because that means everything. You can have your eschatology really screwed up. And just be fine when it's time to go to heaven. Because God doesn't say, you know, believe on the Lord, Yeshua the Christ, and have your eschatology all straightened out, and you shall be saved. Eschatology is not part of the gospel. All right? But soteriology, bottom line, you have to be straight on how to be saved. How is a person saved? Soteriology, that is important, people. To get soteriology wrong is to be damned. Let me close with the words of the Apostle Paul to the Galatians. He said, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the Gospel of Christ. Listen, to say you don't need to believe is a distortion of the Gospel because the bottom line of the Gospel is believe. It's a distortion of the Gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, this has been difficult. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to put anybody down. I'm trying to uphold the gospel, Lord. I pray you'd give us the hearts of Bereans, Lord, that we would not take the things I'm saying as true, but we dig into them. Find out, are they true? Are they right? Do men have to believe to be saved? Or does it not matter? Father, I thank you for the clarity of your word. I pray you'd just give us a heart to dig into it, to study it, to want to know it, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. No, that's all right. Go ahead. I appreciate your enthusiasm. You just go right ahead, Anthony. Uh, that, you, know, you know, by believing in, you know, in Christ and the Son of God, I just think of one word when I, when I see that, you know, and it comes after 
before it comes before by. You know, it should be to me only by believing. I mean, because you can. Well, that is that is. You're right. Yes, you're exactly right. It's only through faith, okay? And and we'll stress that one again another day. But tonight I'm trying to stress that faith is important. Period. You know, because they're saying you don't even need faith. And yes, we, we, it's only by faith. It's not by actions you do. It's not by any performance. It's only through trust. Because see, trust is a gift from God, and God gives this gift to His children. And so they believe. That's how we know we're His children, because we've trusted Him. But to say you don't need to do this is just, you know... Gary? I'm sure I get this right. Um, those people who believe that God is only love and just taking that from the New Testament, forgetting all he demonstrated in the Old Testament, and uh, forgetting Malachi. Well, see, what you don't understand is the God of the New Testament is a different God. Okay? See, he, they switched somewhere. The God in the Old Testament was meanie, and now they've got a nice God. That's what people, that's people's thinking. They don't get he's the same God. You know? You've got to look at the whole picture and see what's happening. You know? Yeah, exactly. And a great point, you know, the whole thing with preterism, all right? You know, look at what God promised to that generation if they wouldn't believe. And they didn't believe, and what happened? He destroyed the temple. I mean, millions of Jews were slaughtered and taken into slavery, and it was just a time of butchering. It was a time that God had promised. A God of love had promised, if you don't believe in me, you're going to be thrown into fire. And they were. And, you know, and it's, again, you have to take the whole... People, this is why I constantly stress, read your Bible. Cover to cover. Read the Bible, because you have to see the whole context. You want the whole picture. And every time someone reads through the Bible from the first time, and I'm in contact with them, the first thing they say is, they get into there and they're like, God's killing everybody. You know, what's going on? And it, you know, it's a little startling at first, you know, because most people never read that. And they read it, and God's, go in and kill them all. Wipe out the babies, wipe out the children, wipe out everybody, you know, the animals. And they're like, oh, and they don't understand why. People, the reason God's doing that is there's a hybrid race. The angels have left heaven. They've made it with women. And now we have a hybrid race, and God's wiping that hybrid race out because it has to be wiped out so Christ can come through a pure race. So you understand what's going on, but that's again, you got to read the Bible over and over, and then you say, ah, I start seeing these things, okay? Stan? Sinners in the hands of an angry God? Oh, <laughs> no, I don't think that was what Jonathan Edwards preached, you know? And that was a famous sermon by Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, because you have to realize, listen, they say, you know, you got to get them lost, before you can get them saved. You know, people think they're fine. Everyone thinks they're fine with God. You know anybody who's died and their relatives haven't said, oh, they're in a better place now. Everybody goes to heaven, I guess, you know? Yeah, there's, most of the world are universalists. Unbelievers, they're universalists. Everybody goes to heaven. And universalists support that claim, you know? But the Bible doesn't. Gary? Well, you uh, bring up the Quran here, and I happen to think since there's so many people that attack the Bible for inerrancy or this and other attack verses and scripture from not being uh, inspired and stuff. Anybody ever attack the Quran? Anybody ever research in You can't do that, okay? That's a protected, protected, you know. And the media is working hard to tell us that the Quran is not a violent religion. Well, let me tell you something, people. Let me just give you a little bit of education here. Let me challenge you to do something. Read the Quran. They are to kill unbelievers. They are to fake like they're getting along with people till they can get in power and authority. This, the Quran teaches this stuff. All you have to do is know how to read. But we don't do research for ourselves. We believe what the media tells us. We believe what other people tell us. It's a peaceful religion. And a Muslim might tell you that. They're lying to you. Or they don't know the Quran. It's not peaceful. Christianity is a religion that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Quran says, kill your enemies. Which one's a peaceful? Jeff? 
So Jesus at the tomb tells Mary to go and talk to the people, and then he shows up later that evening, and then he shows up eight days later. Where was he all that time? Well, the Mormons teach that, right? Okay, Jeff is giving, asking a good question that I've been trying to avoid, okay? I've been toying with it, whether I'm going to get into this or not, and I still don't know what I'm getting into, but the question comes up a lot, okay, where was the Lord for the three days? Where was He then? Or where was He, you know, between showing up eight days, where was He that time? Where, where was He during these periods? Yeah, well, again, if you ask the Mormons, he came to America to preach the gospel, okay? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I really, that's a, that's a good question. It's a difficult question to answer. There's a lot of different opinions on that, but uh, we might get into that. We might not, though. I might just avoid it.